0: is Jim Rugg and this is
1: Paper Cuts so Jim thanks for coming back on Paper Cuts for the, the second time to talk to me it's uh, we're in Pittsburgh we're in your studio right outside of the city yes um, and I've been vid- visiting Pittsburgh for a few weeks now and I really love doing it uh, kind of getting to the city again but also this is now our second time that we've been able to hang out which I, I really appreciate yeah it's awesome you, your timing is perfect yeah <laughs> Um, so just to set the stage here, we're in your we're in your your studio. You're sitting at the drawing table. I'm sitting next to your computer. Um, there's stacks of books around. <laughs> Too stacks many books. <laughs> so many great books. Like it, it's it's taking a lot for me not to just like dive into everything. Um, but what what's currently on the drawing table? What are we looking at? Um,
0: right now you're looking at a street angel drawing, and and it's kind of not just the drawing table literally, but metaphorically. Okay. Because that's what I'm working on is a collection of Street Angel. I've been doing Street Angel books through Image Comics for the last several years, and now I'm putting out a collection of all of them. Uh, so it's like two hundred and fifty pages of all the Street Angel that I've done since I start since I came back to the character a couple of years ago, and that's I'm um, in the last couple of weeks of putting that compilation together.
1: Actually, as a quick thing, um, Street Angel is a homeless teenage kung fu skateboarder yes i usually use Um, the word
0: ninja in there somewhere
1: (laughs) but yes the skateboard the ninja homeless yeah and this like these books you've been publishing through image more recently is your second round with the character
0: yeah the first thing i ever had published was street angel and that was 2003 2004 2005 and then i did like everything else i've done yeah Um, if anybody knows any of my work it's it's after that and uh Things just kind of opened up schedule-wise. Um, we had done a compilation with Ad House Books of all the Street Angel stuff up to like 2012. Basically, it was like a 10-year anniversary edition collecting everything.
1: Yeah.
0: And revisiting whenever I put that book together, it kind of reignited my love of that character. And shortly after that, Image Comics saw that book collection, and I met with them, and, and we talked about doing some different projects, and Street Angel was one of them. And so that just kind of worked out perfectly. And it's nice because, like, the first Street Angel series was black and white. Yeah. And I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to say I'm a much better cartoonist, but also the industry has changed in a way that production has kind of gone up and what independent cartoonists have access to has gotten better. Uh-huh. So the new Street Angel comics are in color, which is on all another, you know, it's a whole different world. And it's been it's been fun to revisit the character, you know, several thousand pages after the first time, and, and hopefully much better
1: as a cartoonist. And you said we, and you have a, a writing partner. I have a long-time
0: writing partner, Brian Maruca, um, co-created Street Angel with me way back in 2002, and we've been writing together on and off ever since, and so he is also on board for the Image series.
1: Um, have you noticed a difference in the stories that you are telling between that First, blush in the mid two thousands, and in this,
0: yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, one of the ways the industry has changed is readers. When yeah. we first did Street Angel, there weren't a lot of um, young female protagonists, and that has completely changed. You know, the yeah. the readership I think has has grown dramatically, not just for Street Angel but comics in general. Like we used to talk about, no all ages comics. Yeah, The 90s kind of saw a lot of changes in, in terms of it was very hardcore, like superhero readers, which mostly were adult males. And, you know, everybody recognized, like, that's a problem. Like, we need new readers, we need young readers, and so you need books for them. And uh, and that's really come back in the last decade, decade and a half. And it's also, um, as comics and graphic novels have gotten into libraries and traditional book publishers, the genres that are popular there have Really come into comics. So, you have a lot yeah. of young adult graphic novels and the readership that comes with that. And that's very different, you know. So, now I feel like Street Angel makes a lot more sense than it probably <laughs> did when we first did it. And it's changed, you know, it's kind of changed stories. And I mean, as a storyteller, like I've changed. Yeah. You know, I've gone from my influences were those 90s storytellers. So, on one hand, you would have like image guys like Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee. And maybe the alternative cartoonist guys like Chris Ware and Dan Klaus. But in the last 10 or 15 years, like we have comics from all over the world, genres, you know, virtually every genre you can imagine, art styles that come from in and out of comics and fine arts and outsider art. And so, like from an influential standpoint, it's like now I'm just looking at everything. And so my comics have they reflect that. You know, the, the influences are just I don't know. There's a million of them now compared to a more or less very narrow idea of like pen and ink, black, you know, like black ink lines. Yeah. Um, it's just not that way anymore. You know, like several of the Street Angel stories. One I did completely on my iPad. Uh, one, a couple I've done in pencil, which is something that would have been unheard of twenty years ago. Yeah. So you know, from a visual standpoint too, they've changed quite a bit.
1: It's also just interesting thinking about like early '90s influences for you, which is kind of well-documented with some of these image characters, but image comics itself is so, so different now than it was.
0: Yeah, you know, everything really has... Everything has changed a lot in in terms of kind of the content, I think, and the Mm -hmm. creators behind comics. There are other parts of the industry that I think are in the midst of change, um, hopefully catching up to that, because just you have to change, you know what I mean? Like, there are some similarities to the way things were 30 years ago in comics, and I think from an industry standpoint, that's a bad thing. Um, just because everything has changed, if this hasn't changed in 30 years, like it's probably dying. So I think that stuff's coming along. But the creator part of it, I think, is sort of ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, in that we are seeing stories for everybody, from everybody. Um, you know, it's come a long way and it's, you know, hopefully continuing to evolve and, and we'll continue to go in that in all of these different directions but it's definitely had an influence on the way I think of like what kind of stories you can tell. You know, one way that street angel has changed is it's much more all ages friendly. Uh And this comes out of just like being exposed to libraries and bookstores that want to know who is this appropriate for? How do we shelf this? Who do we, you know, whose hands do we put this in? Those were concerns that were never mentioned to me in 2003 Yeah. But now, you know, like I just was at ALA a couple of weeks ago, and you see that every librarian that comes up, you know, that's what they're interested in is like, who is this for? What age group? um, Who would read this? And so, like,
1: that's kind of influenced the stories a little bit. So, in 2003, who was Street Angel for? So, I guess that's two questions. One, uh, who did you see your audience as in 2003? But also, what were some of the things that you were uh working through with the Street Angel Comic. Like what were your influences then or what were you interested in telling stories about?
0: I was very disgruntled by what I saw in comic book stores then. Yeah. And I was just, you know, I had gone from comic book stores being my favorite thing ever, new comic book day, go there, buy more than I could afford or, you know, lust after what I couldn't afford. Yeah. To um I would go to new comic book store or new comic book day and not find stuff I was excited by. It felt like it was all the same. It felt like it was stories that I had either seen a million times or just nothing appealing to me. Yeah, and so um, Street Angel was a response to that. It was kind of the opposite of a Batman, Spider Man type character. Mm-hmm. I always would say like it was a character like you would never read this and want to switch places with her. <laughs> you know, like her. She might be able to kick ass, but she's not having a good time uh, in her life. So yeah. you know, it was kind of a contrast to what I was seeing in in superheroes, which I just wasn't into at that point. So it was trying to make what I wanted but couldn't find. There's humor in it. You know, it used to be described a lot by reviewers as fun, which to me is awesome. Like, why aren't there more fun comics? It seemed like a no-brainer, but there weren't a lot. So, you know, like, it was was my attempt to make a book that I wanted that I didn't see. And then, you know, who who it would have been for? Um, Other readers like me, you know, people that had kind of... It was very narrow in terms of how people I knew... Got into comics like we all had a very common reading experience. We would start with newsstands, you know stuff we would find at a drugstore or somewhere and then you you sort of get deeper into it and find comic book shops but it was very much like One brand one one type of story really and so it was people You know, I, I assume there were other people like me that were finding glimpses of stuff that was interesting and different yeah, and that's what I wanted to make and that's who they were for and there were small press festivals popping up at the time, like um, Small Press Expo, Moca in New York, Ape in San Francisco, uh-huh. and these places were a place where you could find more comics like that, where it was like people just making comics that reflected their interests, and you know were outside of the norm of the comic book store, like the Wednesday crowd, and then eventually those people like graphic novels show up, you know, around that time, early two yeah. thousands. And so several of those people would move on to graphic novels. And, you know, it was a wide range of of content and creators. uh, And they would partner with different publishers. Like Raina Telgemeier is a good example that made Smile. Like we would make mini comics. You know, like I would see her at these shows doing mini comics. And slowly she gets connected to Scholastic doing things like um, Babysitters Club books. And Scholastic is kind of handling, like, hey, we have an audience that would be into this, we think. Yeah. And, you know, your your cartooning fits or whatever. And sure enough, it's a perfect marriage. And now you have, like, a generation of readers and new creators that came up that way, that found, you know, th- this work that they didn't have to go through Spider-Man to get to comics.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the access points are really, really different than, like, yours or I's were. Right. In, uh. The, it's exciting meaning, you know what i but, mean like yeah. because then that generation starts making their own comics and it's like
0: a whole different group of influences in, in almost a different language
1: yeah so it's one of the things i find really wonderful about your about your practice as an artist is how much of a student of the industry and student of history you are so every time that we've gone together we've fallen into these like deep rabbit holes <laughs> of like other creators or like other like ashcan comics or zines or like uh, methods of production, how things are printed. So, and you are doing your own podcast, your own like YouTube channel, kind of dissecting the history of comics or many comics with, with a few other people here in Pittsburgh. Do you see any sort of like role of education in what you're doing?
0: I always say that I'm self-taught as a cartoonist. Like I went to school for graphic design. So, you know, I'm not totally self-taught, but it was always like, I just, once I started reading comics, I wanted to make comics. And yeah. it was like, how do you do this? So anytime I found an article or an interview, because this stuff was pretty rare, you know, like finding a cartoonist, especially somebody that was drawing comic books, it was hard to come across, you know, and yeah. then like in the 90s, comics kind of ballooned a little bit. And so you had like trade magazines that were elevating these guys and you started to be able to find interviews with them. And work in progress so you could see like, oh, this is what it looks like to, you know, like pencil a page. And that was very helpful. But I was just soaking that up like a sponge. Like, yeah. you know, I I read that stuff far more than I would read the comic, whatever comic books I was picking up. You know, like I'd go back to these interviews over and over and try to figure out like, how do you make that? How do you draw that? how do you, How do you reproduce it, you know? And when I started going to comic book shops or comic book shows, you would always see like a few of these photocopied kind of mini comics, zines, handmade stuff. And that was huge for me because it was like, Oh, okay, this makes sense. I can do this. You know, it's just photocopies folded in half and it's, it's a book, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe a little lower quality production wise, but it's the same concept as a comic book. And it was real easy to understand that. So that education part, never really ended. Like, I like that part almost as much as I like the comics themselves. Yeah. Um, especially when I find a comic that's different or new or a new artist and it's like, I want to know more about this person, where they're coming from, what they're looking at. And so that part never really went away. Like right now I'm taking a, um, a, a writing class, a screenwriting class, <laughs> um, <laughs> not because I want to write screenplays, but because it was something that sort of like geographically convenient for me but it's a chance for me to just work on my writing craft. Yeah. And I love it. Like, it's really fun. It's very invigorating, you know, it almost like you can feel parts of your brain, like dusting off or firing up for the first time. So that keeps me engaged. Like that's very much like the art making part to me is like learning that new piece or like trying to figure out like how to come at this from a different angle or even, you know, it's, it's all, you could look at it all as craft. So it's like, as a writer, I'm very much amateur, intuition, all of these things. And uh-huh. then you put somebody that's a craftsman in a room with me and have them sort of like shaping me and guiding me and pointing at, you know, additional resources or practices. It's it's just very uh it kind of keeps me engaged in a way that I've been engaged with comics almost my whole life. Yeah. It's just a continuation of that. It would be weird for me to remove that part. Like I, I don't I would lose something if I didn't have some piece that it's like, oh yeah, here's a new, here's a a new piece to go work on. Yeah. Like sports players often talk about in the off season, they add a move, especially like basketball players, like the great players, like you go off in the off season and you add a move. And so I feel like making comics is that way. You just keep adding,
1: adding. Yeah, a move. something new into the toolbox exactly that you can be using later, and yeah, you've been constantly evolving and changing things. So. I want to hear a little bit more about this, about the writing course. Like, why did you start doing this outside of just, like, trying to pick up a, a new move? Um, and have you found that affecting the relationship with how you're working with your writing partner at all? Um, I haven't been working with my
0: writing partner as much. Like yeah. I said, I'm at this stage of, like, compiling all the Street Angel stuff into a book. So it's less writing and more of just kind of the, the design production yeah. aspects. So when we talk now, it's mostly about like, well, what, what makes sense on, you know, filler pages or end pages, or how do we want to present this? So it's less writing new material with him. So it hasn't had too much impact there. Um, You know, from, from my standpoint, like writing's always part of it, you know, like it's super important and you hear it everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I listen to a ton of podcasts and a lot of them are with people outside of comics, you know, it's comedians and filmmakers and all kinds of people that make different stuff. And many of them talk about the virtue of writing. Like that's really the key in almost anything you do, especially, you know, if it's something that's creative, that's your voice, the writing is a way to hone that. So it's always been an interest. This class came uh, across my desk because Ed Piscor was taking it. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, we did a show together and the class was starting like the next week. And he's like, Oh, I'm taking this class. And it was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. So I just signed up, and yeah, I was able to sign up late and uh, and jump right in, so that's how I learned about it. And it was kind of random. It's it was very inexpensive. It's like at a local arts center, so very inexpensive to try it. I wasn't really sure what to expect. These things vary a lot in my experience in terms of quality. Yeah. Um, it's worked out really well. Like the instructor has real experience as a showrunner for a Netflix show, and like I said, just knows her craft. You know, at a very high level. So it's it's been very rewarding in that sense. But kind of random, you know. It, it happened um in the summer. I had a little bit of free time. I was like wrapping up two books, so yeah. you know, like gearing up to start working on the th- on a new book. Uh, it just all kind of lined up perfectly, and it was like, all right, you know, low cost. I have a little bit of free time. I'll try this, and it just happened to work out really well.
1: And are you able to like workshop stories for what will be like the next comic that you? Work yeah, on? that's
0: exactly what we're doing. It's very yeah. practical in that sense. Like from first session, it was like, you show up with your ideas ready to go. And then it's kind of like these weekly deadlines, which I respond really well to. I think maybe everybody does. I yeah. think everyone hates deadlines, but secretly first like we the need way them. things get done. And uh, and so it's really advanced that that process. And it's probably put me much further ahead than if I were doing it myself. Because like I do a lot of different stuff. So it's pretty easy to take the task that I'm struggling with or the hardest task and kind of like move it down the to-do <laughs> list. In favor of something that's a little easier or more gratifying, like an illustration or, you know, something that you can kind of see the end results. The struggle with, for me, one of them with writing is you do so much of this work and it's vital work to the end product, but you don't see it. It's not like at the end of the day, I go, okay, I finished a page.
1: Yeah. Whereas
0: like the drawing, you have this tangible thing, you know, when a page is done and you can make an X in the box of like, all right, I'm closer to the end. Yeah. With the writing, it's kind of like, it's shaping. Like, I don't know. I have no idea what the end is going to look like because I don't know what the size of this. I don't know if this is even something I'll end up drawing. Yeah, um, You know, you kind of have to just go in. It's almost like R&D or
1: something. I'm not sure where it will lead. And this is also like you're working on this new story, but you're compiling all the stuff for Street Angel. You're like working on new drawings for that. You're wrapping up stuff for the Plain Janes as well. So this is not... Like, how do you organize your thoughts across of, of multiple projects? <laughs>
0: I don't think I organized them very well. <laughs> Some of it is practical in like deadlines. Like, yeah. you know, like like I know when Street Angel has to go to press. So I'm not going to have any wiggle room there. You know, like it's kind of asserted itself at the top of my to-do list because I am in this crunch. You know, I have about three weeks to wrap it up. The Plain Janes is all done. Um, and it, it's same deal. Like whenever it was getting down to like this is due, we have to send it to the printer or we have to go through editing with it. Um, it becomes priority. So, you know, like I'm making adjustments and revisions. uh, That's usually the first thing I do. So a lot of it is prioritized from a deadline standpoint because it's summertime, you know, the deadlines are a little bit different. You know, I have a little more free time, which is great for writing. Um, But I don't have a great process. Like usually once a book gets into production mode, I can figure out like when it's due and then break it down to like, okay, that means I have to do X amount of pages per week, you know, for six months or something. That's much easier to manage because it's small pieces that I can see. Um, So it depends on the time, you know, like if we talk again in September, like I'll be teaching a class. So that's like an hour a day of my time, Um, you know, and I just kind of break up my schedule with whatever that stuff is. You have a little bit of free time maybe for like some project pops up that you just can't say no to, yeah. which happens, um, you know, and then you try to work that in. But uh, yeah, the, the schedule changes and the priorities, deadlines dictate a lot of it, but I, I don't have a great system for that. And it, it, it's an area to improve. Years ago, I was doing a ton of freelance work. And I was kind of driving myself crazy. Like, I would get to the point where I was scheduling hours. It'd be like, okay, Thursday from 1.30 to 3.30 is this cover. And, you know, like, I hated it in a way. It was kind of fun because, like, when your schedule's that tight, it's everything up to that point has been practiced for that moment. But I don't want to live that way. Yeah, <laughs> You know, gets, when something does go wrong, really it can really, really like, affect everything else. You know, trying to, like, find time to make up for that mistake. So at that point I decided like, I'm going to try to concentrate on like whittling down this freelance work and just do like one or two projects at a time that I can really concentrate on. And that worked for a little while and it was great. And I managed my schedule to where it was like, okay, one day a week off and sometimes two days a week off. Yeah. And now things have kind of like ballooned back into like doing a (laughs) hundred things at once and no time off. So I need to kind of like get it back under control, but, it's, it's a challenge. You know, when I was a kid, like I always think what I'm doing in my life is a million times better than whatever I hoped for when I was a kid. Yeah. It's, it's very different than what I anticipated. But, you know, you mentioned doing like a YouTube. So I do Cartoonist Kayfabe. is yeah. a YouTube channel I do with my friend Ed Piscor, who's another cartoonist. We started it in October. We record once a week. And then like I edit each day a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of time and i love it it's amazing it's uh we weren't sure i wasn't sure what to expect when we started it but it's kind of like i had done a podcast years ago that was a similar experience where it was just really exciting and fun and and kind of different i think people write about the virtue of being an amateur Mm -hmm. and this is one of those things you know it's like totally an amateur i can mess up i can fool around with editing you know if we have an idea for a show we can just go and and record it and if it's not great that's okay but other things happen. Like the community has sprung up around it. That's amazing. It's almost like what I loved about comic shops yeah. has been recreated in part through this show, <laughs> you know, through the community of like viewers and listeners and people answering questions we have and, and sending us stuff. And so it's really taken off and it's amazing, but it's unanticipated. You know, like I never, when I was a kid, I wasn't dreaming of being a YouTuber. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, I find it rewarding in a lot of different ways, and it's sort of, you make room, you know, you carve out some room for it, but uh, people used to tell me, like, saying no means saying yes to something else, but yeah. saying yes to cartoonist kayfabe means saying no to something else, so it, it's kind of a, you just have so many hours, you know, and, and I need, like, 140 a day.
1: That's why I was asked about organization, because you're doing so much, mm-hmm. and seeing cartoon kayfabe come out, like every week and all the even like the promotional videos where you're just like getting people like teased as to what's coming up is really astounding
0: yeah and a lot of credit to ed for that yeah (laughs) i i asked him the same question because he seems to do a ton of stuff yeah and i don't have a i don't have a great system um i do a lot of list making so that's a way that i can kind of like keep at least i can keep track of what i know i have happening yeah, um, combine that with like calendar on my phone. so whenever I'm you know, anytime something is booked with a date, it goes on the calendar, so that's helpful. Um, it's not a perfect system by any stretch, but that's what I do mostly.
1: Yeah. What are some things you've learned by doing Cartoon Cafe because it's it, I, I'm familiar with it starting off as the exploration of Wizard magazine. Um, and kind of like diving both into like a history of the comics industry, but also almost analyzing both of your nostalgia for that time period, and now you're also interviewing other creators and taking the opportunity to expand it into all this other all this other stuff.
0: One thing I've learned is there's a lot of stuff I overlooked when I was reading those thing those yeah. magazines the first time. It was during a bubble, so you had books like X Men sold eight million copies, but then a couple of years later. We're reading about how you can find X-Men number one in 50 cent bins, uh, you know, in the magazine, like it's all in there. In hindsight, what happens is there's a bubble in the early nineties of like astronomical sales and everybody just runs the comics. People come from like baseball cards and stuff. Yeah. And it's just like, we can get, we can make money here. You know, like there's money to be, to be had, and, and there's gold in those. Comic yes. Bills. <laughs> <laughs> and man, is it just scumbags just show up with their like <laughs> crappy comics, ready to sell it to kids and, and swear they're going to be worth something. And then it collapses, of course, and it collapses. It's awful. Like, you know, great cartoonists swore off comics in the late 90s yeah. and, and like, you know, just left the industry forever because of how cataclysmic the collapse was. People talk about the the coming collapse and the dangers of what is happening from the very beginning. But in hindsight, like as a kid, I wasn't looking at that. I must've just glossed over that. Yeah. I wanted that new shiny comic that was coming out, you know, and, but they're in there. So like rereading it has kind of revealed because now we know that narrative, like we know how all of this stuff plays out. And so when we're rereading it, like you see all the signs and you see a lot of smart people being like this is not going to end well.
1: Yeah, This is
0: a bad practice. You know, don't do this. And what comes up and what alarms me a lot is how much I see same practices happening today. So like, I know that certain things are being done to inflate sales or to, you know, take up market share. Like there are all these things where like you look around and think, how can you guys be doing this again? (laughs) But, you know, I guess it's 25 or 30 years. you, You don't, You know, it's a new generation of people that are making some of these mistakes. Yeah. So that part can be alarming. And then some of it, things that haven't changed. We are at like 1993, which is near the apex of the bubble in our reread. And the editor of the magazine is talking about how many comics are coming out and how do you keep track of all of this. And he's kind of, you can sense that he's overwhelmed. Like he doesn't know what the good stuff is anymore. And he said, what to do is go to your comic shop, and order this stuff. Request the books that you want. Let them know what they are. Pre-order essentially. Yeah. It's the same exact model that is still used in comics, and it breaks my heart because, yeah. like, I know a lot of comics retailers. It is a hard, hard business, and the fact that distribution hasn't really changed in twenty five years, that's one of the most alarming signs to me of this of going through the wizards.
1: Yeah, how's that? How has that shaped your understanding of like street angel wide image or how, like how are you approaching distribution or promotion knowing all this? Or is it any, even anything that you can affect since you're publishing through this larger? Yeah, I I think
0: that you can. And I approach it. Part of the reason that we started cartoonist kayfabe was for that reason. Mm -hmm. You have to sell this stuff yourself. You know, like it's, it's this great myth when you're a kid of like, if I'm good enough, if my craft is high enough, if the book is good enough, it will sell itself. And it's just not true. Like sales is a completely unrelated thing. You know, like you can point to lots of stuff that you think is terrible and yet it sells really well. The two aren't related. So, you know, part of the way I view what I do is like, I also have to get customers, whether that's readers or editors that are going to, you know, pay me to make a cover or whatever, like that's, that's part of the practice, you know, and it's self, it's self promo essentially, which has been around forever. Uh, you know, especially in commercial art, so that's one of the things that I see. You know, like Image is great; they facilitate distribution to a lot of channels that would be hard for me to do on my own. So that's that's what they're doing, and they do yeah. some promo. You know, like they hooked me up with ALA. Um, I'm doing another library conference uh, in August that Image connected me to. So they do some promo, and they do all the distro and production, and then I do some promo. You know, yeah. like I've done a lot of work with Adhouse Books. And Ad House Books is amazing. I love them. Yeah. It's one guy, though. And they're based
1: in Richmond. They're
0: based in Richmond, yeah. yeah. And it's it's one person. It's Chris Pitzer. He's amazing. Great designer. Great publisher. Love him. But I always think, like, he's one guy. So, like, he does his promotional efforts. But if I also do promo, I can double my promo. Yeah. And I kind (laughs) of, you know, I kind of bring that to any of this stuff. Like, if it's worth the time to make it, then I have to put on my, like, agent publicist hat and and find the audience for it. Yeah. Otherwise I'm doing myself a disservice.
1: Yeah, and that's such an interesting thing to think of in terms of the YouTube channel cuz it's its community and audience. It's kind of like collapsing these two ideas together and right, and, and it's building something with your friends.
0: Yeah, and it's not different than the podcast that I listen to. You know, like I I listened to WTF when it first started and it's like you see Mark Marin or any of these guys that have been around like from the beginning of podcasting, they have built this amazing community and connection to their audience and their audience in many cases. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that different. Like we, um, we started doing cartoonist kayfabe in October. And then like our first public event was, I think in June, it's Charlotte. And it was another one of those unanticipated experiences where like people that watch the show, they think they know me. <laughs> and it's like, of course, like, I think I know Mark Maron or, you know, Adam Carolla or, you know, list to whatever podcast you listen to for a couple of years. Like pretty soon you think, you know, that person and and, and why not? Like I go on there and talk about what I like or what yeah. I've read or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, we correspond with several people. So it makes sense, but it just wasn't something I thought about. Like to me, it's like, oh, I'm going to this comic book show that I've done for 10 years. And yeah, and it was very different experience. And, and I think that's part of the difference comes from like suddenly, you know, there's a bunch of people that feel like they know me because of the, of the show. And it's awesome. Like, yeah, you know, like it was sure a really right. good experience. It was just not one. I, I, it was one I had not thought about beforehand, but made sense. Then like on the way home, I'm reflecting on it. And it's like, yeah, of course, like this is the exact response I have to whatever podcasts I like.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: you know, I listen to some podcasts. I listened to one called film junk. That I've listened to for 10 years and I feel like I know all of them and I couldn't pick them out of a lineup It's just an audio
1: podcast. Yeah, you you just have their voice. Yeah, and and,
0: you know part of what I listen to is I don't really care about their film criticism. It's almost like uh, Like friends that I'm catching up with or something. So you're staying on this
1: conversation. That's that's been kind of cool
0: Like I I, I like that part that that personal like you said community.
1: Yeah, and you know I'm I'm someone who loves comics and I do have a history of loving wrestling and I was not sure what kayfabe actually meant (laughs) whenever I first came, whenever you were first promoting everything. What is kayfabe?
0: Kayfabe is a wrestling term, and it's basically keeping the illusion of wrestling, uh, keeping the reality, you know, wrestling, the illusion that it's real, maintaining that. And And in the old days, it would refer to wrestlers that would be maybe outside of the ring if you would catch them at a stadium or something, and a fan would come up that wrestler has to stay in character, Yeah, you know, and, and and kayfabe would be a word they would throw to each other as like, oh, here comes a fan, you know, kayfabe, kayfabe, uh, you know, basically maintaining that illusion, maintaining that character, maintaining that reality that like fans are buying into. Yeah. Part so, of the reason for it in, in uh, cartoonist kayfabe is the alliteration. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, Ed and I are coming, coming at it as both fan and creators. So like, you know, we do think that we're able to, to kind of provide our perspective, and that it's different than, you know, somebody that's just a reader or, or something like that.
1: You know, it's a little bit more maybe a peek behind the curtain. Do you think of Jim on Car- Cartina's Kayfabe as a character?
0: No, I probably
1: should think of it yeah. more as a
0: character. <laughs> I would probably be more entertaining if I approached it that way. Um But so far, I, I don't think that... It, 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 it's just me for the most part. Yeah. Maybe I I should think of it as a character, you know, like all the great wrestlers, like like uh, Steve Austin would always say, "You it's it's you cranked up to like an 11. So yeah. maybe that's what I need to do to to kind of That'd bump us up
1: to, think to of another like, level. Who's the face? Who's the heel of that uh, <laughs> duo?
0: I feel like uh, like Ed kind of embraces the heel,
1: <laughs> I, and it's funny. I think he does a little bit. I just one of my to favorite
0: podcasts is uh, is Jim Cornette is a wrestling manager. Yeah, that's, that's around back into the seventies and was always a heel, but it's a super popular podcast. Like people love him. He's great. He's very entertaining, but he keeps that heel persona on, you know? (laughs) So it's, it's interesting to see how a beloved character like that can maintain the heel part, Um, you know, whether he's cutting a promo on, you know, whatever's happening. Um, it's very entertaining, and it's something I think about a lot lately.
1: Yeah. So maybe you'll see a little more of that. I, I hope so. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be watching for <laughs> it.
0: People like whenever I... Every now and then, I kind of... Something gets me fired up, and uh, the response is usually good to that. Yeah. Yeah, I get I get comments of, like, I should swear more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, you're just too nice on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do also... like Part of what I love about that program is also seeing your collection, and a comic will be uh talked about through wizard or whatever and then you have like three copies of it or like three issues deep of some like old black and white comic from the 90s. Is there a line for you between like research and collecting? That's a good
0: question. We've had a we had a collector on recently and and I was asking him the same kind of stuff because yeah. collecting for me is almost compulsion and I wonder about that. And I'm also as you alluded to stacks of books in this room like I'm kind of at maximum capacity, but I can't Help (laughs) myself, you know. Whenever I see this stuff, Um, I would always call it research. You know, if the IRS is listening, I would call it research. But I don't know. I, you know, like certainly that line is very blurred. You know, like everything you read might be an influence. You know, especially whenever you're picking something out of a quarter box, it's hard to tell what you're going to respond to or how you're going to respond to it. So you never know which, you know, what's actually collecting and what's research. Those lines are very blurry.
1: As with you, it's like I can totally see any sort of comics you'd pick up as research in terms of looking at storytelling and craft, but also in terms of production and distribution. So if you are picking up these like older comics from the nineties that are self-produced, that has to like work into some schema that you're building of of comics. That's a good one.
0: That's some of my favorite stuff right now is like the eighties and nineties self-published yeah kind of comics, and it's almost a spiritual connection. Like, I think those guys are doing the same thing I'm doing. You know, it's a different yeah. scale. Like, I'm I'm doing full-color books with image is kind of a lot different than a black-and-white book from, and they're from all over, you know. It might be, like, from Iowa, and it's, like, a little bit the wrong size. And in my head, it's like, oh, this dude's brother-in-law worked at a printer and was like, we can make a comic, you know. and yeah. And so many of those, they have, like, one comic they did, you know, in their whole life. And you know it was, like kind of a dream and they achieved it, but also it was probably different than they expected. And that's it. That's what you have from this artist. Often I'll find one of those books and respond to it and be like, oh man, this is great. What else did this person do? Yeah, And do some digging and you find out that's it. They made one comic book (laughs) and maybe they were in some other art, you know, commercial art or something. But from a comic book standpoint, this is what you have from this artist and you just got to enjoy that part, you know? Yeah. Um. So, i i feel a real connection in that level of like from from a very basic standpoint they're doing exactly what i'm doing you know it's just like you're trying to make up these characters and these stories and, and draw this stuff and get it in front of a reader and hopefully the reader responds to it in some way so yeah the production has definitely changed you know immeasurably and in, in some of that stuff you know maybe 30 or 40 years ago but from a from a ideal it's it's very similar. So I, I sometimes I draw inspiration from that. You know, like I'll see these things and think like, that's amazing. It's like somebody that this wasn't even their vocation and, you know, they made this thing that speaks to me, you know, forty years later.
1: Yeah. Um with this like larger community of, of comics people, can you tell me a little bit more about the Pittsburgh comics community? Because it seems like there's a lot happening here. Like with with you and Ed and Tom and, and Frank.
0: Yeah. So Pittsburgh, as you know, is was a very cheap place to live for a long time.
1: Yeah. It was kind of
0: a depressed economy for a while. There was probably more housing than there were people. So, you know, it was a cheap place to live and you would have artists living here that might primarily work and show in New York, but it was just, you know, you could commute and live here for nothing. So you could yeah. really practice on, on many levels. Um, you know, like I quit my job in 2007. I'm not sure when Tom quit his. I don't know if Ed even had one. You know, like, like you could <laughs> sort of like do a little bit of work and, and pay the bills and then you know do your own work or yeah. or get better or you know start at a younger time doing it full time because you could afford to do so compared to you know a lot of other cities. And so I think that fostered a little bit of a maybe a generation of cartoonists that came out of that that environment where it was like this we just happened upon this, like it's accidental that we lived here but it worked out well. Yeah. And we all found each other pretty quickly and then would just feed off each other. It, it was not much different than Cartoonist Kayfabe where the stuff that we're showing on there and saying like, oh, this is great because of this reason. We were doing it at a coffee shop once a week yeah. and then like looking at what we were working on, you know, in that like educate ourselves, make ourselves you know, better as cartoonists. We were kind of like just a class, you know, like a writer's workshop or something, except it happened to be with, with images, you know, with pages and stuff in progress. Um, so I feel very lucky for that, but it was very unplanned. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't sure what to expect. As a kid, when I was thinking of like, I want to make comics as an adult, I had no idea of any of that, that I would have a community or that I would need other creators that I could talk to. In hindsight, it's like that saves my sanity, you know, being yeah. able to talk to somebody else and know that I'm not the only person doing this weird thing. It's been really, really helpful. But mostly lucky. The thing that I find interesting with the Pittsburgh guys is everybody just does everything themselves. yeah, which is pretty atypical huh. if you think of even image comics, you know, like with their creator own setup, it still is usually the labor is divided amongst writer, artist, you know, maybe letter colorist. We just always did everything ourselves. Uh, I think out of necessity, at least like I did it out of necessity. I didn't know a writer or, or I didn't know a colorist. Like if yeah. I wanted to do one of these things, it was up to me. But then in hindsight, it's kind of like, I don't want to give that to anyone else. Like that's really, imp- color is so important or yeah. lettering to me is really important. I'm always surprised by very meticulous artists that'll then have like shitty lettering on it. And it's like, you obviously care so much about how this looks, except for lettering is like 10% of the surface of the page. And you yeah. just hand that to somebody and, and it clashes with your art style or read you know it's arranged in a way that reads poorly like like there's lots of ways this stuff can go wrong and you just let it go and some of that is for commercial reasons you know lettering pays nothing like it's it's nuts if you're going to be a letterer you need to letter like a thousand pages a month for it to to pay anything um so you know some of that is the reason like when i started hand lettering stuff it would take me hours to hand letter like, literally, if, if, if it was Marvel paying it, like, I think they pay, like, $15 a page for lettering. So, you know, you would be making way below minimum wage to yeah. letter the way I letter. But I have this, like, I'm chasing this finished piece. You know, like, that lettering can be very expressive. It can lead the eye around. It can help clarify storytelling. Like, there's all this stuff that it can do. I don't want to give that up. Yeah. So... I don't know. That was something that was interesting that like Ed and Tom and Frank, you know, they all sort of approached it the same way. So Sophie Goldstein, when she was here, like a lot of these cartoonists, like we all were doing it all ourselves. And, you know, alternative comics have a history of that. And and I think that was a model probably for all of us.
1: Yeah. Um, what about so we were talking a little bit about like scheduling your days or trying to figure out like how many pages you need to do a week. Um, and all this stuff is malleable; like it changes depending on what's actually on the to-do list or what the deadlines are. Can you tell me a little bit more about like the importance of routine? Like, what do you do kind of every day to keep yourself moving?
0: Yeah, routine. I'm a huge fan of routine. I think that that's a, a myth maybe young artists have of like, yeah. I'm not going to have a nine to five, and I'm going to, you know, I'm, be, <laughs> I'm a free spirit. But the routine is life saving. So I'm always constantly chasing a routine, and I never have one for very long. Like a project wraps up, the routine changes. Um, I tend to get up early. I'm a morning person. Um, I usually eat the same breakfast and lunches. Yeah. Whenever school is in session, the first thing I do is, uh, like, I do my classwork that's somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes a day. So, like, that's pretty easy. I'll drink coffee and do that. Um, you know, so I start my day, and it's like I've already crossed off a few things. Um, I try to run. Um, a lot like I like running so yeah. um, when the weather gets cold I tend to fall off <laughs> but <laughs> like this time of year like like I'll run every day so that's really nice and you know like I try to think of that as part of the routine like if I had a daily schedule of things to do that would be an item to cross off yeah Um. so I have a few of those things and then that's about it I, I, I look at stuff weekly probably more so than daily And that's something that the list will come back to. And when I was taking a day off each week, that was a really good like marker for the end of the week or a start of a new week. And I would get near that like day off and it would be like, okay, whatever I want to get done this week, I've got to, you know, pick it up. Like this is it. This is, you know, I have a day to go or 10 hours or five hours or something. So that was, I found that to be pretty helpful whenever I was like rigidly taking one day a week off. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty good unit for, for me to manage like a week, like, you know, you'd have an idea of what you wanted to get done. And as the week was closing in, you you know, you might have to make adjustments or figure out like, all right, I've got to shift my priorities a little bit. Yeah. So that's about as close as I get to routine. Um, whenever I'm working on a book, like with the plain Janes, I was doing like 10 pages a week. So I would do around two pages a day and, and, the priority stuff would I would do earlier in the day. You know, like I would hop on that as soon as I could. I would do schoolwork. I would eat, and then I would start on Plain Jane pages. Wow. And you know, maybe I'd take a break halfway through that for lunch and a run, and then finish those up. And then depending on how much time I had left would dictate what else on that list I might get to.
1: Um, so I'm also a runner, and I feel like, for me at least, running is also one way to work out some ideas in the background as you're like physically moving. Totally. Yeah, that's what I was going to be asking is like how that actually fits within the larger part of the day. I
0: always think like I'm not even sure running is healthy physically, (laughs) (laughs) but mentally, like it's totally mental. And I have had stuff like when I'm working on a project and I hit a point where it's like I'm not sure how to handle this piece, go for a run. It's it's so good for generating ideas, especially if there's something in there that I'm working out. um, It almost never fails. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a that's a big part of running for me is kind of the mental part and definitely like working out an idea, coming up with some ideas, even refining an idea where it's like you're just going over it you know over and over as you're running. Yeah. Um huge.
1: Do you have a specific uh like path or route that you take?
0: I have a few. You know, like I have some I, I live in a suburban area here, so there's a lot of roads. And so like I have like a three mile loop, a two mile loop, a four or five. Yeah. Um and then, like, I have other places that I'll go sometimes. Like, if my wife is going with me, I'll maybe we'll go somewhere nicer because it's very where I live. A lot of hills, yeah, which can be awesome, but also not. <laughs> if you're not in shape, it's terrible. But if you're, if I'm, if I'm in shape, like, where the four and five mile loops, like, are my daily runs. Like, I feel like I can run anywhere with anybody. Um, but I'll go to like North Park is a nice park that's near me. It's like a couple miles away and it has several different loops, including like a five mile loop around a lake. That's really nice. I like that one. I usually run that once a week or twice. Yeah. Um, I like running over the bridges. So like I'll often run, run along rivers and I can actually run to a river from my house if I'm really in shape, but it's about an eight mile round trip. So that's not, that's not a regular one, but I will go there and like, there's just tons of trails around Pittsburgh along the rivers. And um, I love that. That's, that's kind of my luxury run. Sometimes on Sundays, I'll do a run downtown that runs over all three rivers. It's like a five-mile loop. Oh, wow. And if you do it on like a Sunday in the autumn, whenever the Steelers are at an away game, it's like nobody else is alive. It's, the streets <laughs> are yours. It is the most glorious thing, and you run over several bridges, and it's just, it looks great. It's really, uh, that, that's one of my favorites.
1: Oh, if i were ever back during a fall time, I would love to do that run with you. That sounds incredible. You
0: definitely should. I always, anytime like people are are visiting that I'm aware of that that run, it's always like inviting them to do that one. Yeah. It's really nice. You get to see downtown, and I think the city's beautiful and run over the point. It's, It's a very nice run.
1: Do you have, uh, specific skateboarding routes or is that a quality <laughs> of street angel that does not qu- uh, cross over to jen
0: i cannot skateboard <laughs> i have That's a terrible balance like,
1: there's so much about skateboarding that goes into street angel And i see so many like <laughs> photos of young girls with skateboards They're like
0: street angel i love skateboarding i've tried it a lot i don't yeah. know if it's just me, that's, that's, you know, like if there's some deficiency physically, but usually what happens throughout my life is like, I would try skateboarding for a little while and then have some terrible crash and, and stop for a while. And now I'm at a point like, I just can't, I'm, I'm, I think my skateboarding days are behind me, unfortunately. Yeah. So no real skateboarding for me, but I've always loved it. And part of what I love is it feels like it's, it's superheroes before everything became CGI because uh-huh. the movement was almost physics defying. And so I would like watch skateboard videos and just be mesmerized by them, and also like skateboard photography is such a big thing. You know, like like Glenn Friedman had, you know, like uh, Dogtown and Z Boys. You know, like yeah. he photographed a lot of that stuff, and so much interesting video and photography has come out of that culture where it's like there's almost a visual language for it.
1: You know, yeah. so like
0: I follow tons of skateboarders and skateboard, you know, photography and videos and stuff because it's just very it's a really good example it'd be almost like watching kung fu or you know like these kinds of things where you're just seeing sort of like human movement that is special yeah that you don't see normally at least i don't see when i look in the mirror uh you know and so like skateboarding for me was one of those early examples of like you could almost imagine superheroes coming out of this as you would see that movement
1: i think i was i remember when i was in like middle school recognizing that that was some of what drew me to superhero comics is seeing bodies in motion in ways that were impossible. I think it's,
0: I think about superhero comics a lot, obviously. Yeah. And I have real mixed feelings on them because I, I, I don't respond to them so much narratively. Yeah. But from a visual standpoint, it's like, they're beautiful. You know, like the costumes and the fashions and the bodies, like it's all there, you know, it's dynamic, it's colorful. It has all these visually attractive elements. So yeah, I think about them the same
1: way. Yeah, like the the stories are certainly not something that I'm most really into, right? But, or at least that's even like now it's not what I'm reading for comics. But
0: I think all the time about just doing like slice of life stories, something that that I'm more interested in. Yeah. But everybody
1: costumed because <laughs> they look so good on the page. Yeah. Um. Well, think about that as a way to talk about what you're what you're doing next. Like you have Plain Jane's coming out. And you have the story that you're working on that may or may not end up being objectified as an actual comic Uh, Do you have a goal for when you want that next project to be? Materializing or taking more shape?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm doing I have four weeks to go in this writing class And it's um like we're focusing now on structure and plot so by the end of that four weeks then I hope to draw a chunk of this story And we'll see from from that because it's it's definitely a bigger story, like a graphic novel type story. Mm -hmm. And I haven't worked out visuals yet in terms of how I would like share it with people, you know, whether it would be something that I do digitally. I assume that I want to do some component of it online so that people as many people as possible can see it and read it and interact with it. But I haven't worked out any of those details yet. The other piece is like, you know, selling it as a graphic novel. So I'm going to do a chunk of it at that point and probably figure out, like, is this something I want to spend a year drawing or not? Um, is it something that I can sell? What does it look like? You know, like one of the great parts of making comics is figuring out all that visual information. Yeah. And it's a big process in the beginning. So all of that is yet to be determined. Like I have ideas for that, but it's still like really kind of far out. So that's what I'll be doing over the next four weeks. And then it'll yeah. be fall. And I would hope that I'm ready to draw some, you know, I'll I'll be ready to draw it then as like school starts up, that takes a chunk of my brain. So if I have a story ready to go, then I can draw, you know, like drawing is a different piece of the brain. That's another way I schedule is kind of like when I'm doing a book, I'll do breakdowns first thing in the morning because they're the most demanding piece. And then I'll maybe draw, you know, like pencil, some pages or something. And then inking comes later in the day because as I'm getting tired mentally, that's a that's something that is it engages in a different part of my brain or something so like I can almost schedule my days based on okay my energy is or focus is at its highest at this point so yeah whatever task requires that kind of energy that's when I do when I need to have that scheduled so I'm hoping to have all of that ready to go by fall so maybe mid-august or something like that hopefully it'll be ready to start drawing and, and working out some of these Answering some of these questions that yeah. you answer in the beginning of a project, which is exciting, but a little bit overwhelming. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's the good and the bad of this stuff. You know, like once you answer those questions, you get into drawing mode. And it's it's funny because it really is like running or something where you're getting into shape. And yeah. in the beginning, it's like you're out of shape and you've got to learn to run that hill again and all these tough parts. But once you're in shape, then it that's kind of the reward. You know, I used to say I got into making comics because I like to draw, but I mean, I don't know how, like it's 25% of my time or something, yeah. you know, so much other stuff happens now because you do add those skills. Like I'm not, I'm not content just drawing now. Like I want to write the stories, you yeah. know, I have, I, I, I don't want to draw anything. I want to draw very specific stuff. So, you know, part of that is, is writing that material and you know, it's a different, it's a different piece. It's not something I thought about as much when I was younger, but now it's like, how many, how many books do you have left? You yeah. Know? <laughs> so I want them to reflect, you know, I want to be when I sit down at the drawing table, I want it to be the most excited I can be because I think that translates.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I'm really excited to see how you're developing this new visual language whenever that in the next few weeks as that, as that comes up. And for people listening, like how, how can they follow along to see what you're working on?
0: You can follow me on uh, Instagram or Twitter at Jim Rugg Art, all one word. You can follow you can find Cartoonist Kayfabe on YouTube at Cartoonist Kayfabe. We also have Instagram and Twitter accounts for that. Um and, and those are probably the best ways. I have a gymrug.com, but it's it's relatively static, so it's kind of a portfolio site. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can follow me on that social media, is probably the best way for people to to see what I'm doing. And I post I, you know it's it's mostly uh, all art and production and what I'm working on kind of stuff in my social media with a few cat photos mixed in here and there <laughs> but almost all of it is, is art and drawing and comics and production so assuming that's what your listeners are into uh, that's what they will find on those accounts so Excellent. check them
1: out cool. well Jim thank you so much for inviting me into, the, into your home into your studio and with for uh, talking with me about all this this was awesome as always
0: well I'm so happy to do it man it's great to be back on the show yeah